Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 75, air date November 14th, 2015. I think we should get going so that we have enough time for uh, discussion with the panel and we, we want to leave plenty of time for Q&A with all of you. So thank you for being here uh, this morning for the Partnering for Cures panel on redefining discovery for the 21st century. I'm Rudy Tanzi, and I'll be introducing our panel members in a moment. Last year, I had the pleasure of sitting on a, plan a panel that was led by Dr. Francis Collins, who did the Precision Medicine panel this year. And we talked about the future of medical innovation, and we heard about many new technologies, just some really awe-inspiring new technologies that were redefining this century um, at last year's <coughs> um, panel. And out of that panel, we realized that there was a big need to talk about how do we really redefine the discovery process, the, the process of research in the 21st century where we are going to better bridge basic translational and clinical research. How do we make sure that our graduate students, medical students, postdocs are getting trained in a way that, that they're not siloed into just basic science or translational or clinical? Um, some of the topics we'll touch upon today will include the idea of team science. And team science is good, but it can be scary too, because the idea is to get scientists, engineers, data scientists working together, um, but at the same time, when you have large teams and consortia, graduate students and postdocs coming up, you know, don't, might not get enough credit when their name is just in the middle of a consortium list. How do you make sure that, that, that there's still that career path while you're still enjoying the benefits for humankind of, of uh, team science. Um, we'll, we'll also talk uh, uh, quite a bit about um, a statement that Harold Varmus made in a PNAS article last year that we've produced a, quote, unsustainable, hyper-competitive system. Um, we're producing too many researchers for the number of positions that are available. And frankly, what's happening is a lot of, you know, scientists, a lot of young people in this country are not going into science. They're afraid to go into science. They see uh, the head of their lab, who's a successful PI, struggling to get grant money in today's environment and saying, I don't know if I want to raise a family and have a career based on that. So we're scaring away people from science these days with scarcity of, uh, of funding. And um, so these are just some of the topics that we'll get into. And, um, and plus, there'll be other topics, crowdsourcing, um, how to re purpose, uh, fail drugs, and get that information out there. We'll touch on a lot, and then we'll turn it all to you, over to you for Q&A at the end. But let me introduce our panelists, and I'm, uh, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go into bios, because believe me, the bios of the folks on this panel would take 75 minutes uh, to really rightfully go through. So um, I'll begin with, uh, we have uh, Shia Ayadure, uh, who's um, chairman and CEO of Cytosolve. Um, uh, we have Keith Black who's uh, chairman and professor of the Department of Neurosurgery and director of the Maxine Dunitz Neurological Institute at Sinai, uh, uh, Cedar sinai Medical Center. Uh, Jessica Polka, who is a, uh, a postdoctoral post 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 research fellow. Uh, she knows too much to be a postdoc. No, actually, postdocs know everything. Postdoctoral <laughs> research fellow in the Silver Lab in the Department of uh, Systems Biology at Harvard Medical School, where I'm also from. Um, we have uh, Murray Stewart, who is the uh, CMO of uh, GSK, bringing in the pharma represent, big pharma representation. And finally, we have Keith Yamamoto, uh, Vice Chancellor for Research, Executive Vice Dean 
at the, school of, uh, at the uh, uh, UCSF School of Medicine and also a professor in cellular and molecular pharmacology. So I'd like to begin by just um, asking each of you um, a question um, that you'll have about five minutes or so. Uh, and then when we get into the second round of questions, make this conversational. And at some point, um, you know, if we have burning questions from the audience as we're discussing things, let's keep this casual and open so you can, you know, raise your hand and, um, and, and tell me that it's time for Q&A even before the end if you want. If you have a burning question, feel free to do that, okay? So I'm going to start then with uh, Shiva Ayodure. And for those of you who don't know, Shiva technically invented and is given credit for inventing email. And he has written um, about himself in the past as a quote-unquote uh, dark-skinned 14-year-old boy who discovered email, but many, many were not willing to give him the credit for many different reasons from uh, corporate greed uh, and so on. And so my question to you, Shiva, is how do we find in the world the next 14-year-old kid that's going to invent email who's not necessarily, you know, um, living in the United States in a nice neighborhood, but, you know, reaching around the globe, really just not missing out on the talent and expertise out there that we don't normally focus on, even in, in, in this country, focusing on smaller institutions and colleges where there are very bright people, but we only pay attention to the highest impact institutions. And, you know, like to get your ideas on that to start. Yeah, I, I set up a couple of slides. Okay, that's all right. Please. But first of all, I want to uh, thank Rudy. You know, I think this uh, panel, I think it's extremely important for Rudy to take the courage to put forward some of these questions. I think it's extremely compelling to what I think the Milken Institute wants to do with Faster Cure. So, let me uh, go to the slide. So to answer Rudy's question, you know, just to give you a background, you know, email actually did not come out of the military. It actually came out of a medical school. And it came out of a medical school in Newark, New Jersey, one of the poorest cities in the United States, predominantly African-American. When I went there as a 14-year-old, I actually had finished up all my high school calculus. I was actually going to drop out, went to NYU, and I got a, a job actually initially doing medical research on why babies were dying in their sleep. Some of you may know there's a thing called sleep apnea. But while I was working there, this 14-year-old, dark-skinned, low-caste, by the way, you won't find a lot of Indians like me here, <laughs> in the, Indians, um, <coughs> was given this opportunity. You know, it's important to, these adjectives are important. You know, it's time that, you know, I come out of the closet and share this with you. Um, but while I was working here, the mentor I had, who was a high-energy physicist, so I had very good parents who were supportive, a public school system which changed the rules so this kid could go from Livingston, New Jersey to Newark. A, young, a, a woman fought for those rights with the public educators. And so Dr. Les Michelson said, Shiva, I'm going to give you a bigger challenge. Now, most people know, uh, anyone over the age of 40 knows, in this medical college, there were, there were essentially three campuses, Rutgers, New Brunswick, and Piscataway. Now, you have to remember, 1970s, who used a computer? It was typically old white men with you know, their typical lab coats on huge mainframes, and they did data processing. The, a woman was typically relegated to the, uh, either be a secretary, teacher, housewife, or what else, nurse. And what you see here, here's a picture of a woman who was working in the typical office environment, folders in the background, an inbox, outbox, the address book, right? And she would create this thing called the memo, if everyone remembers. To, from, subject, CC, get the idea? This was a desktop, and she would put it into this thing called the inner office mail envelope, and if some of you remember, this would also go into this thing called the pneumatic tube. They had it. And this was the inner office mail system of the 1970s. And I was asked to convert this to the electronic form. 
Um, and there's a picture of me, and there's my teacher and the mentor, and this came out in 1980. But I call this system email. That's the official code that's in the Smithsonian now. And the reason it was called email was not, was not an obvious term, because in those days, the Fortran language allowed six characters, the operating system five characters. And when I went off to MIT, I met with the president of MIT, said, you know, it's unfortunate the Supreme Court does not allow you to patent software, but the Copyright Act of 1976 was changed in 1980, you could copyright it. So that's the official copyright for email, recognizing me as the inventor of email. Now, as a humble Indian kid, I never promoted this, went off to MIT, did four degrees, and then uh, many years later, uh, my mom had saved all this in a suitcase, Doug Amit, this was actually in February 2012, uh, this article comes out, The Man Who Invented Email. Material goes in the Smithsonian. February 16, 2012, my mom had passed away. And you would think this should have been an occasion for celebration, but this is what happens. People took my picture, said this guy's an imposter, he's an a-hole. You can read all the words about it. And more and interesting enough, blogs like this come out saying this curry-stained engine should be beaten and hanged. Oh, boy. And I want you to look at this. So this is not Jackie Robinson, 1940s. This is 2012, where a guy who's got four degrees, has a Fulbright, is attacked so viciously. And no one stood up for me. Eventually, Noam Chomsky came out, and he said the facts are black and white. A 14-year-old boy invented email. But I want you to look at this, because this is what we're, we're talking about supporting innovation. And if anything, this kid was the ultimate example of the American dream. Now, who was behind this? Uh, by the way, here's an interesting Wikipedia editor writing to me saying, you know, when I attempted to change the facts, I was called reckless and idiot. And he goes, your article trying to collect, correct it on Wikipedia is as uh, volatile as the Second Amendment and the abortion issue. And you should read this. So the interesting thing is, why is this so volatile? When I called it email, I created it, I have the U.S. copyright on it. Well, you find out when this news came out, and this is to Rudy's point, this is now a special interest group, isn't it? Special interest group. A bunch of historians had already written the history of email. So when my stuff went into the Smithsonian, I perturbed these guys. And in fact, these are academics, university, you know, very esteemed academics attacking because I had perturbed their history because they had said a $50 billion defense company, beautiful branding at logo like the Nike logo. They have a guy who looks like an inventor and what he did was early text messaging, it was not email. But they had built a $50 billion brand on this and the fact that this went into there had perturbed this. You following what I'm saying? So the point is, email came out of an environment which it should not come out of and you had this huge conglomeration against it. So I think when we really want to talk about where innovation comes out, it can come out of these other areas. Now, bringing it to the current area, you know, recently we've created a technology, which I'll talk about, a whole in silico platform. If email was the electronic version of the inner office mail system, we've created a new platform, which is the electronic version of how to the human cell. We use that, in fact, recently to show that genetically modified foods, in fact, do not have any safety assessment. They actually don't. The FDA has no, takes no position. We wrote a set of papers showing uh, from a systems approach, they upregulate formaldehyde, downregulate glutathione. Same thing, we were attacked by a guy called Kevin Folta, who's the head of a horticulture at the University of Florida. Said, I have no relationship with Monsanto. Well, a Freedom of Information Act is reviewed, and it comes out front page New York Times that, in fact, he was funded by Monsanto, showing directly he's cutting and copying emails from their PR agency. The reason I'm saying this is we have this collusion in science that believes that only innovations come out of big institutions, and there's this uh, 
deliberate attempt to suffocate where science comes out of. So I think what I want to end on this is, and this is what you're seeing, what's, what's happening, that we need to really address where does innovation come out of, how do we actually support a non-collusionary approach, which really is more inclusive. And I want to end with this picture. So that image, that's when I was 14. And that image, I think, bothers some people, but it really shouldn't. It's a 14-year-old boy who did invent email. And I'm not speaking on my behalf. I'm speaking for all those other many, many kids who are outside of MIT, outside of Harvard, in small institutions who can also contribute to the advancement of health and innovation. And, and we need to be accepting of them, not destroying them. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah. So, so Shiva, we'll get back to this, but I, yeah. I, you bring up so many amazing themes here from discrimination to corporate suppression to um, you know, people having a voice, budding young scientists around the world who are not getting a voice. Just two more minutes on how do we find them? Is there, is there a way we can go out and find the youngest and brightest who aren't necessarily you know, applying tomorrow to Harvard? Well, you, you know what's fascinating? You know, I, you know, there's a thing called the Intel Awards. It used to be called the Westinghouse Science yeah. Award. I actually won one of those. But believe it or not, the, I think the Intel guys are pulling out. I don't know if you've heard this. So one of the main things we can recognize is we need to change the narrative on where great innovation comes from. That's the first thing. Yeah. And, that and that new narrative needs to be actively promoted. And the way I think we find them is, you know, the amount. Yeah, a global, maybe a global equivalent of the Westinghouse. Exactly. I actually, out into, into, exactly. I actually went and started my own foundation, my own money called Innovation Core. And we funded eight students this year. Because my theory is between 14 through 18 is that's when you don't think anything's impossible. And there's a lot of kids out there, and we need to bring them into the fold instead of large institutions. But I think to answer your question, Rudy, I think it needs to be an active, deliberate, promotional effort that recognizes that intelligence, that we got to get away from this caste system, yeah. that you got to go to MIT and Harvard, and then you're anointed right. as intelligent. There's yeah. a lot of freaking smart people out there. And well, we need a, to actively go engage them. That's a great, great, great theme to bring up. So we'll, come, we'll get back to this. Thank you, Shiva. Let's move on to Keith Black. And, and um, the question I wanted to pose to you um, is very general. You know, how do we bridge this gap in terms of training students, graduate students, postdocs today to bring the bench to the clinic? Um, how do we make sure that we're raising the next generation of scientists, keeping them in science, number one, but also teaching them how to think about bringing basic sciences and translational sciences to the clinic, more, a more rounded education? Because when I was a student, at, um, at Harvard back in the 80s at, in, in, uh, at the medical school, you know, it, that, at that time, if you were working in the neuroscience program on molecular biology and not you know, stabbing a squid axon, you were doing what they call cookbook science. And Tony Monaco, who discovered the muscular dystrophy gene, and I, when I was discovering the first Alzheimer's gene, APP, we were just the two Italian guys trying to find disease genes. We weren't doing real science. And so these changes take place over, over time, and I think there's still some discrimination when I meet the, some of the best students who rotate through my lab. Oh, we don't want to do translation work because you know, that's not really considered real science. So how do we fix this? Because we need it for the world. Yeah. Well, first of all, no I, I, I really enjoyed meeting uh, Shiva. I've been uh, texting all my friends. I, you know, here's my selfie with the guy that invented emails. So that's what <laughs> <I do. laughs> the, um, you know, this, this is a really, complicated problem because uh, just to frame it, 
Uh, as a basic scientist, uh, your focus on your academic research discovery, your PhD, uh, you're siloed because you're not necessarily, you're, you're competing with a lot of colleagues and you're not sharing your information. Um, you're not aware of the nuances of the clinical issues that are, are surround a disease process, which is a whole nother complicated um, organism uh, that is also very difficult to understand. And there's a lack of communication between scientists and clinicians. There's a few translational scientists. Uh, and then the ability to actually take a discovery and commercialize it is a whole nother organism with a whole nother complexity to it that becomes really complicated. And so, you, you know, currently, you know, what we tell our PhD investigators, make sure you patent your inventions, your IP, so that it has value. Uh, if they are very um, uh, uh, active, you know, maybe they will say, I have a discovery that has commercial value, so they'll try to put together a new startup and get friends and family to invest some money and, and try to commercialize it, and then they're no longer doing science, they're out you know, raising funds and trying to figure out how to run a company or maybe they're running to some VCs that is really a whole nother uh, sort of issue. So we don't have a good system for this uh, uh, bursting body of information and discovery that's taking place in the research labs, trying to figure out how that actually can be applied to all of the clinical issues that we're facing and the complexity of that, and then trying to get that navigated through uh, to a commercialized therapeutic, right? And so if someone happens to sort of get lucky and get some funding and get sort of the right people that have been there and done it and commercialize it, they might have a success. And Big Pharma is not interested until, you know, it gets to a <coughs> with proof of clinical efficacy because... Well, well Murray is. Yeah, because they, they can sort of do that, you know, whenever. So, look, I think that we need to really think out of the box and create an entirely new paradigm uh, that makes this more effective, very similar to what we heard, you know, with sort of the Netflix concept with precision medicine, right? So we need a crowdsourcing system uh, so that an investigator who's focused on their molecule, you know, that might have tremendous application to Alzheimer's can get clinical experts and say, wait a minute, you know, this makes sense, that makes sense, and then also have the people that can commercialize that say, you know, here are the things to think about in terms of commercializing it. Right now, we're so siloed with each sort of discovery, and the investigators all believe that their discovery is going to lead to the Nobel Prize, so they don't want to tell anybody about it, right? Uh, so that creates um, a very uh, sort of... Um, scenario where we don't have the current environment to get these discoveries vetted, uh, thought about in, in a way that we have, I think, you know, the computing power and the brain power to do and find out what we need to carry through the pipeline. The other thing, and I'll just give you an example. So, um, you know, in, in, in terms of what the research scientist thinks about, for example, even when they begin to talk to the clinicians, so they can say, oh, I have uh, a new IPS cell to treat ALS, and I'm going to inject it into the spinal cord and have the neurosurgery colleagues do that, right? And it's going to release, you know, a factor that's going to save the motor neurons in the spinal cord. 
So you get this whole effort and, and a new startup to develop that, and no one has actually said, wait a minute, you know, ALS goes from the brainstem to the bottom of the spinal cord. That's about four feet. So if you have a neurosurgeon inject six injections that are going to go about two millimeters, ultimately that's going to fill you know, the clinical test of proof of concept. So we need a more efficient system. Uh, I don't really have a solution, but I, I think that we need to change the way that we think about intellectual property, create a way to, to share that information, to, to share uh, the recognition and uh, whatever sort of economic advantage you know, can be derived from it so that in investigators are now more incentivized to put their information into a crowdsourcing uh, environment, you know, to get clinicians looking at it in a way that's efficient, to get entrepreneurs looking at it and get funding and, and to show a commercialization pathway because um, the way that we, we do it, you know, it's, it's not even 21st century or 20th century, it's really 19th century uh, sort of processing. Thanks, Keith. So, you know, you bring up crowdsourcing, which is, I think, a great theme we can get back to. But when you bring it up, it, 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 would, it would appear it is not just for fundraising, but also to de-silo. Right. So, so for a student <laughs> to get ideas out there and not be ridiculed, um, you know, again, there's the stigma of if you put anything out there that you're doing before it's published in a peer-reviewed journal, you know, it's, it's you know, publication by press release or publication by, <coughs> by Twitter, right. you know. Well, so where do we, you know, how do we find the balance where we can have researchers, students, graduate students, whoever, be able to put out ideas and get feedback without, you know, being stigmatized as, you know, trying to <coughs> lay claim to a discovery without peer review. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not easy, but I, I, I agree that if you want to get the feedback you need, you need to make, take advantage of, of um, the internet and, and of, of the media that's available to us. I mean, is that going to be coming in this century? I don't know. Yeah. Again, I think it's, it's, it's a difficult challenge that we face because the way that we're trained, the way that we're taught, the way the system is set up, it's really counterintuitive to do that, right? You're criticized for doing it. You haven't published yeah. in nature or science. Right. You know, is your IP filed? And, you know, how are you going to share it? How are you going to share it with your university? And, and you know, this conference is about faster cures. Right. So, I mean, I see discoveries all the time. I can give you 20 examples uh, right in our neurosurgery neurology department at Cedars that are sitting there dormant because the scientist wants to silo the information, uh, or you have a PhD scientist who's really good at science now saying, oh, I'm gonna become an, a, a biotech startup and go out and do fundraising and be the CEO of my company. You have a few people that can really do that and be a, you know, a quadruple threat, but now you've taken the great scientists away from what they do really well, and now they're trying to figure out, well, how do I do a startup? How do I talk to VCs? How do I go and do a road pitch? To raise funding, this is this yeah. is a tough problem. I mean, the fact is still today that you know if you have a paper in Nature or Cell or Science, you're going to get the better job. You're going to um, right. be more likely to get your grant through study section. So, uh, but that may not be the fastest way to cures. Right. Um, it's the fastest way to a career development. Right. So again, finding that balance is going to be yeah. important. That's a good segue.